This episode contains a description of sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Dear Archbishop, my name is John Doe. 25 years ago, when I was 15, I was sexually abused by a priest in your archdiocese, Father Smith. This is an actor reading a letter our production team wrote. It's a composite account of real sex abuse cases. I used to spend the night in the rectory with Father Smith and several other boys. The event was billed as a way to help us discern whether God was calling us to the priesthood. My parents approved of the sleepovers because they knew Father Smith and had had him over to dinner at our house a couple of times. They also really hoped that I might become a priest. My mom talked about it a lot. During one of the sleepovers, Father Smith said that due to a mix-up, one of the extra bedrooms wasn't available. He said that it wasn't a big deal. Since he had a big bed and since I was so skinny, I could easily fit on one side of it. That night, Father Smith performed oral sex on me. I felt paralyzed and confused. It was like I was just watching it happen from outside my body. Father Smith said that this was just a little education about how my body worked and that it was our special secret. I told my parents the next day. They weren't sure what to believe, but told me to stay away from Father Smith from then on. I did a Google search, and the priest is 78 years old and lives in a home for retired diocesan clergy. I don't want to report this to the police. It's ancient history. But I want an apology for what happened to me. Sincerely, John Doe. Welcome to Crisis, Clergy Abuse in the Catholic Church. I'm Carna Lozoya. For this episode, we wanted to explore what happens when a person reports allegations of abuse to the church now. And we wanted to hear that story from the people who actually handle these allegations. So we constructed John Doe's hypothetical case and presented the scenario to a former district attorney, a diocesan investigator, and a canon lawyer. We asked them how the case would be handled by the police, the diocese, and the Vatican. Again, Father Smith and John Doe are fictional characters. These allegations are composites of real events. Okay, so John sends this letter and he he addresses it to the Archbishop. Who reads it and how does it navigate its way through the, um, the chanceries? Sure. The Archbishop would, would get it to me directly. Uh, I would look at it. Our first step is to always report to law enforcement. Tim O'Malley is the Director of Ministerial Standards and Safe Environments at the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis. In addition to managing the diocese's response to issues of sex abuse, O'Malley investigates allegations that come in. My background, I I was in law enforcement for a a, a fair amount of my career as an investigator mostly or supervising investigators. I also have a a law degree and I practiced law for a while uh, in Chicago in in the private sector. But right before coming to this job, I was um, deputy chief administrative law judge for the administrative law courts here in Minnesota. O'Malley arrived at his new job in the middle of a major clergy sex abuse scandal. 
A whistleblower claimed that then Archbishop Neinstadt and his predecessor had mishandled allegations of clerical sexual misconduct. In 2015, the Archbishop resigned in disgrace. At the same time, prosecutors brought criminal charges against the Archdiocese for failing to protect children. That was the situation O'Malley encountered in the first months of his job. When you say call law enforcement, you're not dialing 911. Who are you calling? No, it, the jurisdiction where it occurred. This says there's a certain parish, so whatever town that was in, we would call that either police department or county sheriff's department that covers that, has jurisdiction there. Now remember, John Doe wrote in his letter that he didn't want to go to the police. I have had people who have said, I don't want this to go to the police. I, I will refuse to cooperate in any investigation. I don't want to do that. Um, I, I may still have an obligation to go to the police, and, and usually there's a way to work it out. I'll, I'll give you an example. There was a woman who came and uh, actually through one of our bishops and knew him well and said, I'd like to talk to you about what happened to me. She reported it to him. We met and she was adamant that I not tell anybody. I told her that that really wasn't an option. So the accusation that she was making was, was against a man who was still alive and was still in the priesthood. And I said, you know, we, we need to act on this. What if we did this? What if I called law enforcement and described to them what happened without giving your name? Because law enforcement's job is, is to investigate and prosecute only cases that are prosecutable. I'm not sure this is prosecutable. Let's report it and do it that way. And she agreed to that. So I went to law enforcement, explained what they had, what we had. They came back and said, you know, would it be possible for us to talk to her without having her identity directly known to us? Well, let me check. So I went back to her and she agreed to do that, that they wanted to ask her some specific questions about events. So she did that. And then uh, uh, they built some trust. They went back and came back a third time and said, you know, I think this, this very well could be prosecutable. Would you check with her to see if she'd be willing to meet with us and and in person and identify herself. And by that point, she had agreed to do that. So even though initially she didn't want to, there's usually a way to fulfill all of our, our roles and our responsibilities uh, and, and not cause further harm or not, uh, not make the situation worse. Is it a fair thing to say that currently any allegation made to the church official institutional church is reported to authorities? Yes, we go beyond what the statute requires. The statute here in Minnesota requires uh, if if it's uh, an allegation of uh, abuse or neglect of a minor that's occurred within the last three years, you report it. We go beyond that. Uh, if, it's, if it's an allegation of abuse of a minor, no matter how far back it goes. So you always have to report it? Yes. Once O'Malley reports the allegation, law enforcement takes over. Now the decision whether or not to pursue criminal charges rests with civil authorities. My name is Sue Burney. I was an assistant DA for 32 years, uh, three years in New Orleans, and I would make that 29 years in uh, Baton Rouge, East Baton Rouge Parish. Uh, I handled sex crimes and severe physical child abuse, as well as the sex crimes, both adult and child victims exclusively for about 28 years. I did the murders and armed robberies and all that, but my niche was sex crimes. I asked Bernie to look at our John Doe case and talk me through what would happen once the police began their investigation. 
She told me they would start by interviewing the victim. A very crucial question in that uh, first interview is asking, can you remember who the first person you told? Or did you ever tell anybody, even if it's a friend? It doesn't have to be an adult. Do you remember telling anybody? Because in Louisiana particularly, and probably other states as well, the, the first person told of a sexual abuse, uh, that can be used as evidence. Then, police begin an investigation. If they find probable cause, they'll make an arrest. Probable cause for an arrest means it's more probable than not that the crime has occurred. You know, hopefully, and I used to try to impress upon officers, don't stop if you don't have to with probable cause. Go beyond and see whatever corroborating evidence you can get to help build the case because ultimately the prosecutor has to be able to present a case that the standard of proof is beyond reasonable doubt. In our hypothetical case, here are some additional facts that the investigation turned up. The rectory cleaning woman found pornography in Father Smith's bedroom once, but she didn't say anything to him about it. It was adult pornography, not involving children. The rectory cook says that she overheard Father Smith talking on the phone once with someone named John, and it sounded funny to her. She remembered the priest saying, You're getting so tall and strong. Have you been working out? And one time, she walked into the kitchen where Father Smith was making breakfast with the boys from a retreat, and she noticed that his hand was on the lower back of the boy standing at the stove. She thought it was strange, but dismissed it. From the face of it, I think it would be prosecutable. He told his parents. You know, they chose to have him not, you know, just stay away from the priest and everything. The, I think the, the um, was it the cook who saw him, um, you know, with his back, his, his hand on his back? I mean, that's a little, un- I mean, just little pieces that add to the puzzle, if you will. I think finding the, the pornography corroborates uh, what John Doe said. Uh, his talking to, uh, overhearing the conversation about, oh, you're looking good and strong. I mean, those are all grooming techniques. One of the things that I think is important for the prosecutor to make the jury understand is that testimony is evidence. There's a lot of people, even sometimes police officers, think that to be evidence, it has to be physical. And so... The law says that testimony is evidence. It probably can be the most compelling. Our hypothetical John Doe says that his abuse happened 25 years ago. In some states, this would disqualify his case from being prosecuted due to the statute of limitations. The statute of limitations is a law that sets a time limit for how long crimes can be prosecuted. It varies from state to state. If the window passes, the case is no longer prosecutable. His case may not be able to be prosecuted as a victim, but he can help the prosecution, let's say, if other people, other victims were to come forward. And sometimes just the the publicity of an arrest gives people courage to come forward uh, because they know now they weren't the only ones. And so sometimes there's comfort in, in, in numbers. And unfortunately, many of these cases, there are numbers. It's not just one victim. But there's a way that it all can be interrelated. And 
one can help the next. Most cases of clerical sex abuse that come to light today are historical cases that can't be tried in criminal court, either because the accused is deceased or the statute of limitations has expired. Victims may still be able to sue in civil court. If you've heard about a diocese going bankrupt, it's likely because of financial settlements from lawsuits over clergy sex abuse. The police can decline prosecution for a lot of reasons. Uh, and we did have one case where a priest was accused and they investigated and the chief of police actually sent us a letter saying, not only are we declining prosecution, I'm here to tell you that the allegation is false. There is no merit to it. Our investigation showed that. They could also decline prosecution because uh, they, they have reason to believe that it's, it's true, but they don't have sufficient evidence to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, reluctant witnesses, uh, witnesses who have died, uh, evidence that was seized inadmissibly and won't be allowed in court. You know, there could be a number of different reasons. Regardless of whether the DA decides to prosecute, the accused priest in our hypothetical case, Father Smith, may still face prosecution under the church's law, known as canon law. Just like the U.S. legal system has lawyers who interpret and apply the law, the Catholic Church has canonists for canon law. My name is Susan Mulherin, and I am the Chancellor for Canonical Affairs for the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. Mulherin got her degree in canon law from the Catholic University of America. I asked Susan, what is the role of canon law in the Catholic Church? Our church is a community of people, and every community needs good order. And canon law provides that good order for our church and for our communities. Um, if you think about our our church is universal, it's, it's through the entire world. So um, the code of canon law applies to the church in Minnesota as it does in Peru, as it does in Japan or Poland. It's the same law throughout the entire world. At the outset of the canonical investigation of our John Doe case, the bishop calls Father Smith in, tells him about the allegation, and listens to his reaction. Before he leaves, I do sit down with him, and I have a um, summary of, of what his rights are. Um, I would present him with a copy of the decree opening the investigation, and also with the decree, we uh, we call it a precept, because it directs him to to do certain things during the course of the investigation, like um, refrain from any ministry, you know, don't contact uh, any specific parties who might be involved in the investigation, things like that. I also give him a list of canon lawyers to to call and encourage him to, to do that and let him know that if um, he's not able to connect with them, that, that we can also provide a canon lawyer to give him advice during this time. Canon law specifies how the bishop should carry out the investigation. And this canonical investigation, it's an obligation of the bishop under canon law. There's a canon 1717 that directs the bishop when he receives an allegation of a delict, that's the word in canon law for a crime, um, If uh, when, when he receives an allegation of a delict and he does that initial review, that it, there is something that can be investigated, it has a semblance of truth, he has the obligation then to proceed with this investigation, appoint the investigator and start that process. 
Tim O'Malley is the investigator for his archdiocese. We approach our investigations with internal investigators. Some people hire law firms. Once a canonical investigation is started, the community is informed. An announcement goes up on the Archdiocesan website stating that an allegation has been made against Father Smith and that an investigation is underway. In canon law, the accused is presumed innocent until proven guilty. Then we conduct an investigation not to determine if a crime occurred necessarily. If, if a crime did occur, it's easier to deal with the fitness for ministry uh, part of our investigation. But our investigation is to determine whether this priest uh, is fit for ministry today based on his conduct in the past. And that's the, that's the criteria. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty narrow in a way, but it, should he be in this position of trust in the community wearing a collar and, and providing uh, spiritual direction and sacraments to people uh, based on his past behavior. So then we, we conduct an investigation. So we, we, we gather as accurate a facts as we can. Um, we, we allow the facts to lead us to a recommendation or a conclusion. Uh, in this case, I can imagine that we, we would talk to the cook who was at the rectory. We talked to the cleaning lady. John describes it that uh, several boys would spend the night there. Uh, we would interview them, I would think. And it turns out that some of these cases, even though they're 25 or 30 years old, there is a way to determine uh, with, with a fair amount of confidence, uh, sometimes with a lot of confidence, whether the event occurred or not. Some would say that having an internal investigator paid for by the archdiocese isn't going to be objective, that you would need a third party to do these investigations. What do you say about that? I think it's a real valid concern. A real valid concern. And when we got here, they had they had used some law firms, they had used some private investigators that, uh, frankly, uh, their investigations, I, I don't think, were of the quality that they needed to be. We put together a team here that is uh, exceptionally highly qualified and, and uh, high in integrity, and we've made them known. When I came in, uh, my background and the background of the others uh, was put on the line, and I made it clear that my reputation wasn't for sale. I understand the criticism, I really do. Uh, but I think in our particular case, this was the best way to move forward. And I think ultimately the proof is in, in the end results. We have uh, removed a number of priests from ministry. We've done it fairly. We've done it very directly. We've done it with transparency. We've made it known. We've used our review board to accomplish that. Once the investigation is complete, the investigator submits a report to the Archdiocesan Review Board. For our review board, yeah, they would see everything. They would have all the information. We, we want to make sure that, that they can give an informed decision. Review boards, made up mostly of laypeople, look at the investigator's report to help the bishop decide whether the allegation is proven. You know, in the old days, the accusation was two or three callers got in a back room and made a decision. That's not the case. Now there's really highly competent lay people with expertise that, that feed into that system and the process in a way that the decision ultimately made by the archbishop is much more informed than ever before and also is uh, he's held accountable for those decisions. I asked O'Malley, who's on the review board in the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis? Well, our board has uh, 11 members altogether. Two are non-Catholic. We try to have a very diverse group. Uh, six are male, five are female. We have, I think, three law degrees now. One is a retired judge. We have a couple medical doctors. People have graduate degrees in psychology or, or, or uh, one is a psychiatrist uh, who work with sexual abuse victims and also sexual abuse offenders. 
We have uh, one who is a, uh, one of the medical doctors is a, a survivor of sexual abuse by a priest when he was a teenager, when he was a minor. Uh, so he offers a, a obviously important perspective. We have uh, two members who have had family members who were abused. The accused priest is always invited to defend himself. A priest is not compelled. They don't have to, but they're invited to either submit information through a canon lawyer, through another lawyer, themselves, in writing or in person. And then the board deliberates. The question before the review board is whether the allegation of sexual abuse of a minor is credible and substantiated. These are two words that are used by every diocese in the United States. But it's not always clear what they mean. So you are not going to find the terms credible and substantiated in the Code of Canon Law. Uh, These are terms that have developed out of um, practice. I think the term credible in particularly comes from the the John Jay study that was done back in uh, 2004, I think. And they used the word, you know, they asked dioceses to submit the number of credible allegations that they've received. And define credible because it's not what we think it is. It's, well, it, it depends on each diocese, to be honest with you. So our diocese defines it in one way, and that's not going to be the same as another diocese. Our diocese makes a distinction between credible and substantiated. Not all dioceses do that. We think that that sort of dual level is appropriate because I think canon law does the same. So when you look at, again, canon 1717, um, and it talks about if the the first thing the bishop has to do is figure out if this allegation has a semblance of truth. And that's when we say it's credible, it's possible, it could have happened, um, or it's not manifestly false or frivolous. Very, very, very low bar right? There's, essentially, there's something to investigate. That's how we define credible. You might see other dioceses who, the, what they mean by credible is really what more what we mean when we say substantiated. We think there's reasonable cause to think that this happened. We believe that this happened. The use of the terms credible and substantiated developed after 2002, when Catholic dioceses began publishing lists of clergy accused of sex abuse. That's what really drove a lot of the use of these terms. But they're not terms defined in canon law. You're not going to find them in the code. Shouldn't we all just use the same terminology, meaning the same thing? (laughs) That's come up a few times. The the challenge with that is a lot of these disclosure lists have been produced in the course of legal proceedings. And those, those, those definitions were set in settlement agreements or, you know, directed by judges. You know, and, they, and they've been, they developed sporadically. So to come up with a, a, a one standard definition, it's, it's not really feasible. The review board will, will deliberate. Then they write up a written recommendation on whether uh, that priest is fit for ministry or not. And if so, if there are any conditions or suggestions or recommendations on, on things that should be put in place. Or they, they, they may uh, report, and they've done this, that they don't believe the priest is fit for ministry today and should not be in ministry. So what would the review board do in our John Doe case? I don't know, intentionally. Uh, it would depend on what the facts show. You know, I, I don't know what we're going to find out. Uh, I, I neither believe John nor disbelieve him. I don't know what the priest is going to say. You know, we've been surprised sometimes, especially somebody older, will go to them and they'll say, you know what, yeah. Yep. You know, then it's an easy case. But if the priest adamantly denies the allegation, and it's the only one that's ever been made against him, 
that makes things more difficult. We also may have enough evidence, and we've had ones where, you know, we can go back and, and look at uh, the physical location where this happened. You know, we've had ones where the details provided by the victim were enough to substantiate it. In our John Doe case, the review board judges the allegation to be substantiated. Then I get that written report, and I write my own recommendation on top of that. I do my own separate recommendation. Uh, often it's in sync with them, but sometimes I'll add some things. And then both of those recommendations go to the archbishop, and they're recommendations because he is the final decision maker. For John Doe's case, the archbishop agrees with the determination of the review board and the investigator and judges the allegation to be substantiated. He puts his agreement in writing and informs the board and tells them what actions he plans to take. So they see what his reasoning is and what he's going to do. So this is part of the kind of fairness, accountability, and transparency. You know, nobody's against fairness, accountability, and transparency, but how do you make it real? We make it real by making sure the board gets all the information, unvarnished, everything. They see it all. And if the board, you know, if he were to do something that's outrageous, the, the, the accountability for the archbishop is that he has to go back and tell them what he's doing and why. And if, if they don't like it, we have people on there that would walk and it would be, it would be scandalous. At this point in the story, the archbishop, with the counsel of the review board, determines John Doe's allegations to be credible and substantiated. He notifies the public about the case against Father Smith. He would go up on our list of substantiated uh, uh, accusations on our website. But it's important to reiterate that even if a priest is named on that list, since there hasn't been a canonical trial, he has not been judged guilty. When you look at that list on our website, we, it says right there, um, this is not a determination of guilt. Um, if we think that the, that the allegation is substantiated, um, it's reasonable cause to believe that it may have occurred. And while the priest has been taken out of ministry, he's still a priest. Nothing so far has changed his status in canon law. He's still a priest, and... Um, and the diet he's still getting paid well you know so so the bishop has certain obligations to every priest and in this case he he would have an obligation to make sure that that priest is not destitute and so um, there's an obligation to provide at a minimum um, a level of sustenance is what is what canon law says so um, that's not the same thing as receiving a full salary like you would pay to a, a priest who's working um, but it's it's at a minimum making sure that this priest has a place to live he has the necessities of life that he needs he's able to to pay for the care of professional services that 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 he needs and and then he he's provided for. Next, the Archdiocese does what it can to ensure that anyone who would have had regular contact with Father Smith is notified. We go to any parishes where he had served. We give them notice of it. We help them with a communication statement, usually. Sometimes the Archbishop and O'Malley go to the parishes personally and host a listening session. And you'll get both sides at those. You know, there's always some that say, listen, I know Father X. There's no way he did this. It's, it's impossible. It's not. And then often at the same meeting, someone would, usually after a little bit, will raise their hand and say, wait a minute. Either they'll say they were a victim or they know victims say, you know, we all know of cases now where we were very surprised that somebody we knew 
you know, maybe Bill Cosby. I mean, I, but everybody in their own life knows somebody who they thought, there's no way that this could be true. And then you find out it is. Alerting the public isn't the only thing that the archdiocese does at this point. They also notify Rome. So the canon that governs these cases is canon 1395-2. And it says um, a cleric who has committed this offense is to be punished with just penalties, not excluding dismissal from the clerical state if the case so warrants. So when you read that canon, that's a huge range from a just penalty to dismissal from the clerical state. So your outcome to this to these cases can be anything in that range. In the United States, we have particular law in the United States that says um, a priest who has committed even a single act of sexual abuse of, of a minor shall not return to ministry. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't equal dismissal from the clerical state. Dismissal from the clerical state is normally referred to as laia cessation. The archbishop has to send a file of information to Rome and make his recommendation about Father Smith. Then his job is to notify the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in Rome. So he needs to—this um, is where I would help him a lot—package uh, up uh, what we call the acts of the case, the investigative file, um, and then the, the findings of the review board and the investigator. And then the archbishop writes his own opinion. It's called a votum, and his own assessment of it, and he submits it to the Congregation and um, and— waits for their direction on how to proceed. The Vatican may authorize a canonical trial and will instruct the bishop on how to proceed. Rome could hold the trial themselves, but running a trial on another continent isn't always practical. In most cases, they will write to the bishop and give him the ability to hold the trial locally. One of the options is to have a judicial process, actually have a canonical trial. And that's that's supposed to be sort of like the default position. Uh, because it, it affords the greatest rights to the priest. So that's that's one option. Another option would be to um, handle this through what they call like an extrajudicial process or an administrative process, um, which is it's a formal canonical process, but it, it doesn't have all the steps of a trial. This extrajudicial process would be an option if all the evidence has already been gathered, and the diocese does not think any more facts would arise in a trial. In that process, you'd make sure that the priest with his canon lawyer have all the information. They have an opportunity to provide a, a well-reasoned defense. And then the the bishop works with two people. They're called assessors. And they read through the case, and they give the bishop their own opinion on um, whether or not the, the priest is guilty of the crime. And if he's guilty, what is the appropriate penalty to be imposed? So the assessors would give that opinion, and then that decision comes from the bishop. That's one of the other big distinctions between an extrajudicial process and a judicial process is the judicial process, the decision is given by three judges, and in the extrajudicial process, it's given by the bishop himself. Okay, so there's a trial option and an extrajudicial administrative process option. Got it. There's one other option I didn't tell you about yet. Oh, tell us about the other. More options. Great. This isn't complicated. So so as I mentioned, so the bishop, when he writes his votum and he su- submits it to Rome, he is supposed to ask or make a recommendation as to how he'd like this resolved. He has the option of the judicial process, the extrajudicial process, or in what they call the gravest of cases, 
um, where it's it's manifest um, and and necessary for the good of the church. Um, this priest could be dismissed from the clerical state administratively without this judicial process or this extrajudicial process. And, and that would be done by the Holy Father himself. There would be no appeal. Um, and it would be, again, reserved for these, um, the gravest of cases. In our hypothetical case, the Archbishop sends the file over to Rome. And because all the facts have been gathered during O'Malley's investigation, the Vatican grants the Archdiocese permission to carry out an extrajudicial process. Father Smith is found guilty. The Archbishop consigns him to a life of prayer and penance, but decides not to laicize him due to his age and poor health. If the man is not dismissed from the clerical state, that can be a very hard thing for people to understand or accept. Um, and But Rome has been been pretty clear on this, that that's not an appropriate penalty for every single case of sexual abuse of a minor. They don't dispute that he needs to be excluded from ministry, but he can live out the rest of his life in what they call prayer and penance. It's sort of casually called that, with the idea that he can make atonement for his own crimes and for the crimes of others by spending the rest of his priestly life um, offering masses and reparation, offering prayer, and trying to make some retribution for the wrongs that have been committed. This is hard to hear. Father Smith did a terrible thing. And despite the fact that he was found guilty of sexual abuse of a minor, he's going to be taken care of by the Catholic Church for the rest of his life and die as a Catholic priest. This was a close look at the existing process for handling allegations of clerical sex abuse through the experiences of two experts of the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis. Understanding how the system works and is intended to work is important. It helps set expectations for a legal process, which, like any legal process, has its limits. While the process has improved greatly in the decades after the Dallas Charter, there are still cases, recent cases, of dioceses where even lay investigators and review boards mishandled allegations. While improvements could always be made to the process, its success depends largely on the expertise, commitment, and integrity of people like Tim O'Malley and Susan Mulheron. This process, you might say, is only as good as the people implementing it. If you follow a process and people fulfill their duties, uh, the outcome, you may agree or disagree with the outcome, based on emotions or other other issues. But if, if you follow a process, then I think there's some integrity in that and there's some fairness ultimately. And because we've, we've let that happen and we've actually fallen on both sides of this, I think people do have some confidence. And I don't just mean in me, but in the investigators and in the process, everybody. We say our goal is to find out what actually happened. And we've had, a, I think, a fair amount of success in building some credibility into that system.
next week on the podcast. When talking about the sex abuse crisis, we tend to focus a lot on what the clergy have done or failed to do. But what about the rest of us? There are over a billion members of the Catholic Church worldwide. We'll speak with lay Catholics about the responsibility the laity bears for this crisis and what role they play in the church. From the Catholic Project at the Catholic University of America, you're listening to Crisis. Our podcast team includes myself, Carnal Zoya, executive producer Stephen White, producer Jeff Gosser, and communications manager and writer Sarah Perla. Sound designed by Paul Veitkus. Music courtesy of Jay Tibbetts and APM Music. Our theme song was composed by Gautam Shrikashan. Marketing and distribution provided by Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate. Cover art by Tom Grillo. Our John Doe letter was performed by Jeffrey Holtz. Special thanks to Karen Michelle and all of our guests. For an episode guide or for more information about The Catholic Project, go to thecatholicproject.org. If you've been sexually assaulted, you can receive confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. If the abuse is related to the Catholic Church, you can also contact your diocese victim assistance coordinator. Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash VAC.